Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are in your neighborhood, ready to help personalize your insurance. And you can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. Visit statefarm.com today to get a great rate without sacrificing great service. That's statefarm.com. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this podcast comes from Stella Artois. This summer, enjoy the life Artois. You can experience it anywhere, from your patio to the tidal basin. All it takes is being present, being there, with the people you love and a cold Stella Artois in hand. Wherever you are, you're never too far from the life Artois. Stella Artois. Please enjoy responsibly. Thank you for listening to the history of World War II podcast, episode 225, an interview with Lynn Vincent and Sarah Vladek about their book, Indianapolis, the true story of the worst sea disaster in U.S. naval history and the 50-year fight to exonerate an innocent man. Lynn Vincent is a New York Times bestselling author and a U.S. Navy veteran. Sarah Vladek is a National Geographic historian an award-winning documentary filmmaker, and one of the leading experts on the USS Indianapolis. She appeared as an expert commentator on PBS's USS Indianapolis, Live from the Deep, which explored the ship's wreckage. Together, their book strives to cover more than just the sinking of the Indianapolis, or of the trial of its captain after the fact. They seek nothing short than to tell the entire story and return the USS Indianapolis to its rightful place as the proud and courageous flagship of the U.S. Fifth Fleet during World War II. Thank you, ladies, for being with us here tonight. Thank you. Great to be here, Ray. Thank you. Well, it's night where I am. I'm not sure where you're at, but uh, I think we can get away with that. So I just want, before we start with the questions, uh, I just wanted to start out by saying what a joy it was to read this book because it had everything in it that a great history or military book needs. You start the story way before the main event. You certainly go very far after the main event, if, if I can use the term main event. You throw in so much detail that gives everything in the story context. But most of all, you pepper the book with all these personal stories, all these people. It must have been a ton of work to get all these personal narratives. And what I what I was reminded of is that ships like the Indianapolis or any other ship for that matter is made up of people from very different walks of life, very different goals and how war and conflict changes everybody's lives forever. So I just have to ask, how did the book, how did the project come about? Well, it actually started quite a few years ago. Um, Back in 2001, you know, I had been interested in the story for quite some time and, you know, reached out, decided to reach out to some of the Indianapolis survivors. And at the time, you know, it wasn't, Google was really around yet. So it was kind of a a different scenario, but I was able to (laughs) kind of date me, but there was um, (laughs) around 2001 when I reached out to Paul and Mary Lou Murphy, who were the chairman and secretary of the survivors organization and found their phone number in the directory and gave them a phone call and 
um, after about an hour conversation, I ended up being invited to a reunion. And so that was my first introduction to the survivors of the Indianapolis. And from there, I began in, uh, attending reunions every year. I mean, at the time, I think they were every other year. And then they have since become every year as the gentlemen get older. But, you know, went to the reunions and about a couple years later, they asked me to be their storyteller. And so this was about 2004 when that happened and began doing interviews in 2005. And really these men kind of took me in as a granddaughter and their families who, you know, just made me feel like part of the group and charged me with telling the story. And this is the kind of story, you know, when you're asked to tell it, you don't, you don't mess up when the survivors of it tell you you're going to be a storyteller for them. Right. <laughs> so, um, that's kind of the, the short version of it, but that's, that's really how I initially got involved and, you know, it, it evolved and progressed the years. It was 2012, Lynn? Yes. About that. Okay. So, you know, you can say serendipitous or providentially, you know, Lynn was brought into my life and, and I could not have asked for a better writing partner and friend and you know, we've involved, evolved into fantastic friends over the years in doing this, but she really was embedded into the group as well and became friends with these families and survivors, getting to know these men. And so essentially we were charged with this responsibility of telling this story by the men who lived through it. And what a privilege it's been to be able to do that and to work with them. And so we wanted to make sure that the reader really felt a sense of who these people were as men, not just people that fought in the war, not just um, men from, you know, generations past. These were people that were like family to us, and we wanted everyone to know who they were and the role they played in ending the war and, you know, what took place after those events. Wow. Yeah. And, and everything you just said certainly comes through in the book. Again, just, just the level of detail was incredible. Um, so since your name, your, since the book is uh, named after the ship Indianapolis, let's start with that. Uh, can you give us some uh, some information about the USS Indianapolis um, and her connection to FDR? This is one of the things that we have, well, I wouldn't say battled against, but one of the things that we've confronted in writing this story, Ray, is that there have been other books written about Indianapolis. And even as we were working on the book, uh, we would have people come up to us who said, Indianapolis, boy, haven't three or four books about that ship already been written? What else is there to say? Well, a reviewer, uh, or actually another author who endorsed our books, said on Jacket, and one of the things that people is Indianapolis, the ship, is more than a ship that was sunk. When she was commissioned in 1932, FDR chose her as his ship of state, and he made a good goodwill tour down to South America, and he invited world leaders and royalties, uh, excuse me, royalty to dance on her decks, and really the ship became a, a symbol of the friendship between the two nations. And Sarah, is it correct that that was the first time a Navy ship ever carried an American president outside the United States. Yes. Yes. Correct. So another interesting thing uh, about the ship's connection to FDR, and this is close to my heart because I'm a Navy veteran. 
My husband's a Navy veteran. He's also a trusty shellback, and some of your listeners may not know what that is, but I'm going to explain. Um, In the Navy, it's a a tradition that before a sailor crosses the equator for the first time, he's what's called a polywog or a slimy wog. (laughs) And then when he crosses the equator, he goes through this ceremony, and after he crosses, he becomes a trusty shellback. Well... During this ceremony, there is uh, King Neptune, and, and King Neptune has to sign the trusty shellback certificate, and um, FDR represents the only president who ever did that, and some of the indie sailors who actually sailed during the course of the story that we tell had, had these um, trusty shellback certificates. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, just a question based on your background. For traditions like that, is is that um, to generate a sense of family or teamwork or belonging? I, I'm just curious about um, why they would have something so detailed worked out for crossing the equator. Oh, yes. It's a part of the lore and the tradition and the camaraderie. And this ceremony that they have is is quite elaborate, and the, the men dress up and and they, uh, it's, it's almost, I mean, this is kind of a bad word now. These days might call hazing it's much more good naval, and it's not some of the crazy shenanigans that you hear about in fraternities these days. But it's definitely to generate that sense of camaraderie, that sense of belonging, that sense of coming together and, and going through something that's, you know, part funny and part difficult and coming out on the other side of it. Uh, okay, so this is obviously not your average Portland class heavy cruiser. So, it, so let's let's jump into the uh, the Indies uh, experience uh, in World War II. I know that she was involved in the hunt for the Japanese carriers after the uh, attack on Pearl Harbor. Can you give her give us an idea uh, to get us up to uh, I- Iwo Jima? Some of the things Indy and her crew and or her crew went through during that time. So. Indianapolis left San Diego and then went over to Pearl Harbor in January of 1945. And from there, she really found her way into the Pacific, where she was at the front of the battle line or the the picket line, as they say, um, for Iwo Jima. They saw, you know, the flag race where um, really from not that far away, although it was not that impressive to some of the sailors who were these 16, 17 and 18 year old kids who didn't really recognize what they were seeing at the moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they're going from Iwo Jima to raids over Tokyo. You know, they're participating in the fifth fleet um, missions where they're, you know, doing the raids on, and um, unfortunately the fire raids on Tokyo. And from there, you know, they're, they're going back to Okinawa and they're preparing for Okinawa. So they're, um, shelling the shores, they're preparing for the bomba- the bombardment that is supposed to take place on April 1st. And this is, you know, March by now. Mm-hmm. And so this is about two weeks before D-Day, or the landing day for Okinawa, when they arrive there and start the shelling and are, you know, preparing to bring troops to the shores for the invasion. Okay. And one of the things, uh, and... Uh, just um, rolling the film backwards a little bit, you know, um, in 1943, Admiral Raymond Spruance took over command of the fleet 
even though Indianapolis had an aging cruiser, the reason he did that is because he wanted a fast ship, and Indy was one of the fastest ships of her size in the fleet. And he wanted to choose a flagship that, if it were taken out of battle for some reason, whether through uh, it being damaged or because he had to leave to take over, you know, the duties of command somewhere else, he didn't want to weaken his fleet. And that's the reason Admiral Spruance chose Indianapolis. So by the time um, she arrived off the shores of Iwo Jima, she had earned eight battle stars at the Battle of the Philippine Sea, Saipan, Guam, um, the Solomon Islands. I'm sorry, not the Solomons. Saipan, Guam, Tinian, and so forth. So by the time we get to Iwo Jima, she'd already been in the fight for two years. That's incredible. So she's FDR ship. She's the flagship for the Fifth Fleet. Um, and from what I gather, Raymond Spruance was a very aggressive commander. So I'm sure um, the ship and its crew, various crews, obviously saw a lot of action. Um, so, so we've gotten to the landings of Iwo Jima. February through March of 1945, uh, and like you said, it helps by uh, covering the landings of Iwo Jima by hitting Tokyo, the first carrier attack since the Doolittle Raid, but that brings us to her captain, uh, Charles Butler McVeigh III. Can, can you give us a little bit about the man who's, who's now in control of the ship? Well, Captain McVeigh was... Um an up-and-coming officer. Of course, by this time, he had already achieved the rank of 06 or captain, but he was the son of an admiral. So he was actually Captain Charles Butler McVeigh III, Mm. and he was the son of Captain Charles Butler McVeigh Jr., who was a veteran of the Spanish-American War and World War I. So his father was um, kind of a tough man and, you know, had been around in the Navy even in the 1800s. So at that time, uh, warships in the United States Navy proceeded under sail. They kept livestock on board for their food stores. They used, they still use pikes and cutlasses. So by the time Charles B. McVeigh III came along, the U.S. Navy had been modernized under Theodore Roosevelt, President Theodore Roosevelt. And he had really begun to make a way for himself. He was uh, a he was the commanding officer of a patrol boat in China. He was executive officer of uh, it was either a tanker or an oiler. Um, he earned a silver star for courage under fire at the Solomon Islands. And just before he took command of Indianapolis, he was chairman of the Joint Intelligence Staff in D.C., which was privy to some of the most um, the, the most closely guarded secrets of, of the war. So this was a man who was on his way up. You know, as a Navy veteran myself, you know, I'd look at a resume of an officer like this and say, okay, this was a man who was on his way to flag rank. And then, of course, that was um, cut short by... Commander uh, Mochisura Hashimoto's torpedoes on July 30th, 1945. So it sounds like McVeigh is a pretty, from what I gathered from your book, he's a pretty aggressive um, commander. The the Indy is a pretty aggressive crew. I mean, it is a warship, and so even though they are uh, they they are help leading the charge. Uh, against Japan, I mean, obviously there there are tense moments. Um, could you give us a little information about um, 
what maybe what happened on Iwo Jima. I think you covered it a little bit, but but mostly I want to focus on introducing the Japanese sub I-58. At this point in the war, you know, the Japanese fleet was really diminished to almost nothing. Um, you know, they, they had had a terrible you know, history of failure with their submarines. And so at this point, they're getting de- desperate and they begin to introduce the Kayatin fleet, which is the su- suicide torpedoes that would be manned. And, you know, they'd send these young men off into oblivion in most cases where, you know, in an attempt to take out a ship or some kind of target that, you know, was essential to the Allied fleet. And so at this point, Hashimoto is, you know, one of the submarine commanders who is leading the Kayatin, you know, has a Kayatin submarine. And it's up to him to determine whether or not these torpedoes will be used on vessels. And so, you know, he's heading into... Iwo Jima and Okinawa, and he's at Okinawa when, you know, he has a target and so he finally has something lined up. He's prepared to attack, and he gets called away. He a job that really was kind of meaningful, and, you know, he, just as he being called away, mission from him saying, nope, you need to return right now, and he loses his opportunity to perhaps get a strike for the Japanese Empire. So this is very disappointing, and especially because he finds out that it was really for nothing, really of you know, huge importance to the Japanese fleet. He was kind of serving as a beacon for communication um, that was being sent across the Pacific. So, you know, at this point, he really has not had a success. He is trying to do for the emperor and for his country and desperately seeking a, a kill. So it's interesting that you mentioned the current state of the Japanese fleet, because in the storyline of, of my podcast, we are literally days away from Pearl Harbor. We, you know, I've been examining uh, the the arrogance of both sides, the condescension of Americans as far as they, they don't think the Japanese uh, military is very good. Um, and But at the same time, Admiral Yamamoto is like, look, if you if you tell me to do this, I can run wild for a year or two, but after that, it's just a matter of industry and population, and, and America is going to pretty much wipe us out. In fact, it's the Japanese Navy that is, as much as their pride allows them to, is going, no, no, we don't want a war with the United States. Um, and and obviously, Yamamoto is right, because it's now gotten to that point here in 1945, um, I, I just think that's interesting that that it's come to this just just like he predicted, just like a lot of people knew that it would. So we get to the pre-invasion bombardment of Okinawa, and again the uh, the Indy does its part. Uh, it helps it helps with the pre-invasion bombardment. Um, but then comes March 31st, where the tide is going to turn for the I guess relative good luck that the Indy and its crew has had up until this moment. Absolutely. The the Indy had, by the point of Okinawa, they had nine battle stars. Okinawa would be their 10th. And so one of the things that's interesting, you know, you asked us to talk early in this broadcast about, you know, how Indy factored into the war. From her decks, Admiral Spruance literally strategized and built this island bridge from Pearl Harbor to the home islands of Japan. And all of that culminated. And and by the way, for your listeners who 
you know, our World War II aficionados and buffs, you know, we are aware that, you know, Bull Halsey led, had his own flagship. And so he led the third fleet. And when he was in the, the entire Pacific fleet was called the third fleet. And when Spruance was in command, it was called the fifth fleet. So they took it in turns and, and one of them would be ashore strategizing, making plans for the next battle while the other was in operational command, but Spruance had overall command. So by the time we get to Okinawa, you know, that bridge is, is only one step from being complete because, you know, the, the American Navy has pushed westward all the way from Pearl Harbor, all the way to Okinawa, which is the last invasion of uh, the home islands of On March 1st, 1945, it's the day before Easter, and they, they are one day away from the Okinawa landing. And early in the morning, the men are going through their daily routines, and Indian, Indianapolis is at condition one, not battle stations, but, you know, on high alert. When they when they hear the accelerating engines of an Army Peregrine Falcon coming in to attack Indianapolis, now by this time the Japanese, uh, under the leadership of Admiral Matomi Ugaki, had been uh, attacking American ships with these kamikazes. They had been using the kamikaze for several months, but Ugaki had just taken over the month before taking over command of the special attack forces known as the kamikaze. So here comes this army peregrine falcon and it slams into Indianapolis and it sort of hangs on the rail like a malevolent insect just hanging there. And But right before it slammed into Indianapolis, it released a bomb. It was a 500-pound bomb and that bomb drew all the way down through the ship. And in the book, we talk about these different people sees it go right past them on the mess deck. And then another sailor, it falls right past his bunk in birthing. And it continues drilling on down through the ship. And then finally, it blasts out through the hull. And when it's out in the ocean, it explodes. And the force of that explosion blows back through the ship and absolutely wrecks the ship. Nine sailors are killed. Uh, how many injured, Sarah? Twenty... I believe it's 27 were injured. 20, 27 are injured. And um, apart from the loss of life and the injuries, what's so significant about this kamikaze strike is that it absolutely changes the course of history. Because had that kamikaze not hit Indianapolis, barring other unforeseen events, and of course in war you can't know what's going to happen, but there's a good possibility that Indianapolis would have weathered the Battle of Okinawa and emerged as the victorious flagship of the victorious Pacific Fleet in a victorious United States after the war ended. But wow. as it turned out, yeah. she had to go back to the United States for repairs. That's incredible. And that put her in the position. That put her in the position to be the ship on call when the army needed to transport the atomic bomb back to the Pacific for the strike on Hiroshima. 
that's a good point you make. There are so many different moving parts to history, certainly to war, that, uh, yeah, you can, in, in this instance, you can draw a direct line to this um, event, this attack, this kamikaze, and with what's going to happen in the main part of the book. So, obviously, the Indianapolis is severely damaged. It has to go back to repairs. Um, could you tell us where it went to and maybe what some of the crew was during, doing during these time of repairs? After the Indianapolis was hit by the kamikaze plane and they did some patchwork in the small islands off of Okinawa, which was Karamaretto, they headed back to the United States and went up to Mare Island, which is just off of San Francisco. And uh, that's where they did the primary repairs for the ship that was the, you know, the western kind of port for um, warships at the time. And so at... Mare Island, you know, these men are now on, some of the men are on leave, some are on repair duty. You have old crew leaving the ship, new crew coming aboard. But really, this was the, the time where the men, you know, they're stateside, and so they're given leave to be able to go home and see some of their families. And, you know, there is Earl Henry, whose wife is, I believe, eight months pregnant at the time. And so he goes home and he gets to see her and have dinner with her. Um, it's a train ride across the country to go to Mayfield, Kentucky, where he's able to spend some time with her. And this ends up being, you know, the last time he gets to see her before little Earl Henry Jr. is born three days later. So he actually didn't get to see the birth of his son by just a couple days. He was recalled back to the ship. Mm. And then, you know, you have these younger sailors who are going home to see mama and their brothers and sisters for the last time. And, you know, really what this time was, was the first instance where these young men felt vulnerability. You know, they're 16, 17, 18 year olds, as I mentioned before. And, up until this point, they'd been untouched. They'd seen war. They obviously were impacted by what they had seen, especially, you know, at Saipan where they're seeing kids off the cliffs and they're seeing all these um, horrors of war. But really the, the Indianapolis being hit by the kamikaze was the first time they were directly impacted by uh, attack. And so all of a sudden, it's not as easy to return back to duty. It's not exciting. It's not going to see the world. It's not a girl in every port kind of, you know, mentality that they had had up until then, it was, oh, I could not come back. And I think that was the first realization for them and that they may never see home again. So a few of them were reluctant to leave and you know, they did go back as, in a sense, as eager as they had been when they signed up to go to war. And, and I would add this, that um, during this period, during this repair period in the yard at Mare Island, Almost everyone thought that the war was going to be over. Earl Henry, who Sarah mentioned, had written to his wife, oh, honey, the war is going to be over in, you know, six months. And um, a lot of the sailors felt the same way. And they really didn't think that they were ever going to see the forward areas again. Wow, yeah. So, I mean, we all know that when we're 16, 17, 18, we, we think we're invincible until something like a kamikaze pilot slams into your ship. Now they're, like you said, they're actually not certainly not wanting to go out, but they've got to be, 
semi uh, cheered up by the fact that, yeah, they do think the war is over. There's no way Japan can come back from this. Their their navy has been decimated. So the, the Indianapolis has been under repair for three months. Everybody's scattered probably all over the country seeing their families. But then suddenly McVeigh gets orders um, because he is in charge of one of the fastest cruisers in the fleet. But they're not exactly ordinary orders. Could you uh, tell us a little bit about that? One of the things that uh, that we explore in this book that's really never been written about before, Ray, is the actual mission to transport the atomic bomb. And that those are the orders that you refer to, although McVeigh himself didn't know what he was going to be transporting. All he knew was that he was supposed to report to Admiral Purnell's office. Admiral Purnell uh, was at Mare Island. He was an assistant chief. Now, Purnell was a Navy's representative to the, what we now know as the Manhattan Project. Um, by this time, and, and, and what this really represents, which I think is very interesting, this mission and the people who were involved in it really represent the final braiding together of the European conflict and the Pacific conflict leading up to the end of the war. There was a, an Army super spy named Major Robert Furman, and uh, he was General Leslie Groves' head of intelligence for the Manhattan Project. And Groves personally charged him with shepherding the fissionable components of the atomic bomb over to Tenian Island in preparation for the strike on Hiroshima. And as you mentioned, Indianapolis was selected for this job. So McVeigh goes to see Admiral Purnell. He's summoned there under very mysterious circumstances. And they say, look, you have a secret mission. You're not going to go down to San Diego for refresher training like you thought you were going to. You're going to head over to Hunter's Point, which is uh, down the bay from Mare Island. And uh, you're going to take aboard some secret cargo. And by the way, we're not going to tell you what it is. And also, by the way, you need to proceed at breakneck speed to Pearl Harbor. You are not to allow any other ship to share the horizon with you. And you're going to take two Army officers on board with this secret cargo. And so that's what he does. And suddenly all of those sailors and officers that Sarah mentioned that were all on leave, they were home seeing their families, uh, the, the priest on the ship, Father Conway, was recalled from where. He had been visiting the families of the sailors who were killed in the kamikaze strike. He's recalled. Suddenly, it's very hush-hush. Um, they're all at Hunter's Point. They, they, uh, the sailors and the officers, they don't know anything other than that they're on this high-priority mission. And then the hangar deck are immediately posted as guards around the crate. And meanwhile, the two Army officers, one of whom is Major Furman and the other is Dr. James Nolan, they discreetly carry aboard the actual secret cargo, which is actually not in the crate. They carry two buckets, which Furman describes in his own personal writings as looking like two tallish, old-fashioned ice cream freezers. And they... The way they carry that is they have a, there's an eye bolt in the top of each one of these buckets, and they thread a pole through the eye bolts, and then some sailors kind of heave it up on their shoulders the way headhunters, you know, are shown in the cartoons carrying their captives. Mm -hmm. And they take that up to the flag lieutenant's quarters, 
and they bolt that to the deck in there, and, and those buckets are what contained the core of the bomb we now know today as Little Boy, which was the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. At CDWG, we get that migrating your agency to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't wanna do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDWG's experts can help simplify your transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDWG. People who get it. Find out more at cdwg.com slash Tech. Wow. So, so I imagine um, since they have no idea what they're carrying, and this is coming from pretty high up, that the rumors must have been rife about what was in the, uh, the cabin and also what was in the, uh, the hangar deck. So, of course, you know, the secrecy of the mission start, you know, it was kind of the, the perfect scenario for these young men to start rumors. You know, they don't know what's going on. They can tell that there is something important and, you know, they're being asked to go at high speed. So it's different than usual. It's not just the typical cargo being transported. So rumors start, you know, and and they're flying all over the ship. There's bets being taken, um, as you can imagine. And, you know, everything from a Cadillac being shipped over to MacArthur to a crate of scented toilet paper. You know, (laughs) you have um, imaginations are running wild in this. And so... They, you know, there's some men that even started rumors with the whole thing where they, you know, you have a young Glenn Morgan who's kind of a mischief maker on the ship. And he decided to start some rumors just to mess with the Marines, especially, um, you know, they got a kick out of ribbing each other on board. And they had, you know, the 39, they had a complement of 39 Marines on board the ship that were guarding the, the crate, as Lynn had mentioned earlier. And so, you know, they're messing with these Marines. And so you have, you know, the young, these sailors messing with the Marines, you have a, you know, trying to place bets, all these rumors are going around and no one really knows what is in this, this cargo. And of course, you know, the more secrecy there is, the more they want to know. And really what the, you know, the, the irony of the whole situation is that there was nothing in that crate. It was all kind of a diversionary tactic to draw attention away from those if you will, ice cream containers that were carrying the heart of the atomic bomb. Wow, that's amazing. So I do know that um, they bring on 250 new men. And like you said, and, and you, your book was replete with paragraphs that started with John Smith, age 18, fresh out of college or high school or whatever. And there's, there's some real kids uh, in, in, on board the ship now. And again, they were hoping the war would be over. It's not for them because of the special miss- mission. And I didn't know this before, but at this time, it wasn't required to know how to swim to be in the Navy, which strikes me as odd. But, but the, um, so, so they start off, they've got this, fast, this fastest ship, probably one of the fastest ships in the Pacific. They're going on, and, and like you said earlier, even McVeigh, did not know what he is carrying. Not that it matters. They are off to the races. They are heading to Pearl Harbor as fast as they possibly can. Now, one of the interesting things that happens is shortly after they get underway, they go through the Golden Gate. They're confronting some weather out uh, as you know early on when they get out into the Pacific. McVeigh goes back to the flag lieutenant's quarters to check on his army guests. And at that time, 
Major Furman tells him, I can't tell you what's in these containers, but I can tell you that every day that we take off this trip is a day off the war. And at that, McVeigh realizes that it's a weapon, but he doesn't know what kind of weapon. Uh, Obviously, nobody knows about the atomic bomb except just a very, very few select people who are involved in the Manhattan Project. So he speculates out loud that maybe it's some kind of biological warfare, bacteria maybe, but his comment meets a wall of silence and, and he just sort of moves on. And so... They speed across the Pacific, and Indianapolis makes a record run to from Farallon Light off of San Francisco to Diamond Head, making the journey in about 74 and a half hours, which, interestingly, is a record that still stands today for a ship of that size. So they go to, they pull into Pearl, and uh, Dr. Lewis Haynes, who is the chief physician on board, he notices that wow, they don't have to queue up and wait in line for fuel the way they usually do because Pearl Harbor is usually just super, super busy. As a matter of fact, all the ships that would normally be in the harbor are now outside the submarine nets and they're the anti-submarine nets, and they're just sitting there. Hmm. And Dr. Haynes goes, okay, this is really strange. And that's when he realizes that whatever they've got, and he still thinks it's in the crate, not in the ice cream freezers, but he realizes, wow, whatever we've got is awfully important. So, so what happens when they, when they uh, finally make it to Pearl? When they finally make it to Pearl, they, uh, um, one thing that happens that turns out to be very ironic is that the chief engineering officer, uh, Glenn DeGrave, Commander Glenn DeGrave, is actually put off the ship, and he's really angry about it. And the reason he's put off the ship is because he's got what they call overage orders. I believe he was 51 at the time, and he had beaten these kind of orders before, but this had finally caught up with him, and the Navy said, hey, you're too old to be in combat, you're too old to be at sea, so you are off the ship. And uh, so he stomps down the brow at, at Pearl Harbor, and um, in the end, it turns out that that probably saves his life, because when the ship gets underway again, uh, they make the journey to Tinian Island, which takes a little over a week. They land there on uh, July 26, 1945, and that's where they offload uh, Captain Nolan, Major Furman, and the crate and the ice cream freezers at Tinian Island. And, of course, we now know that Enola Gay, the, uh, the bomber, was waiting for the package coming from the Indianapolis. So the secret cargo has been dropped off. Not that these gentlemen have any idea what's going on or what's going to happen next. All McVeigh knows is that now that he has dropped this off, he's going to get orders from Admiral Chester Nimitz. Yes, so at this point, you know, McVeigh has reported to Guam where he receives the rest of his orders. And he, you know, is going to be heading to Leyte in order to receive further training. Because you have to remember a lot of these young men are very new to the ship. They're very green and have never seen any action. They don't know, you know, how, you know, battle drills. They know very little about the protocol in this situation. So McVeigh 
it has been kind of frustrated because the sea trials and everything that they were supposed to do after the Indianapolis was repaired mm-hmm. were all postponed in order to get him to Tinian with the secret cargo. So now he's, you know, requesting to have training. He's going to meet up with Admiral McCormick over at Leyte, and this is kind of his expectation of what's next. So I guess that the training is necessary, one, because you have all these new kids on board, and two, you know, they're getting ready to invade, you know, eventually Kyushu, the uh, southern island of Japan, one of the four main islands. Um, But as it's going... um, uh, to Guam, I'm, I'm trying to remember the exact time, but there seems to be a breakdown in standard naval communication, which is vital to the rest of the story. So could you kind of flesh out what happens uh, when they start their next part of their journey? I want, I want to preface that by sort of painting a picture of the area of the Pacific that we're talking about, because prior to getting involved in telling the story, I didn't know where the boundaries of the Philippine Sea were or where these islands were positioned along that boundary. So within, you know, the body of the Pacific Ocean, which is, of course, the largest body of water on the planet, you have this area called the Philippine Sea. And that area is bounded by islands that are in the shape of a giant horseshoe. And the islands on the west are going north to south, uh, not this isn't all of them, but going north to south, you have Saipan, Tinian, and Guam. And then if you continue going down toward the very southern end of the horseshoe, you have the Palau Islands, where you have, you know, also Peleliu, which is one of those islands. And then going up the eastern uh, upright of that horseshoe, you have the Philippine Islands. And uh, almost directly across the Philippine Sea, from Guam in the west, I'm sorry, in the east, is Leyte, an island in the Philippines, in the west. So when Indianapolis sets sail on July 28, 1945, they're going from Guam on the eastern edge of the Philippine Sea to Leyte on the western edge of the Philippine Sea. And it's almost a due west heading. And it's a little over 1,100 nautical miles away. The breakdown in communication begins when um, Indianapolis's departure message is sent from Guam. And the orders, actually, I'm sorry, the orders are transmitted from Guam to Admiral McCormick over in the Philippine Islands. That's the admiral that Sarah mentioned. His radio men scramble the numbers in the message And they conclude that that message is not for their boss, Admiral McCormick. Well, what that message said was, hey, Admiral McCormick, Indianapolis is going to report to you for training. And so Admiral McCormick never gets that message. So Indianapolis gets underway on July 28, 1945, westbound for Leyte. Meanwhile, Commander Hashimoto, who we mentioned earlier, is on his own mission, and he is with a group of attack submarines called the Taman Group, and all four of these submarines are carrying the Kaiten human suicide torpedoes that Sarah mentioned earlier. Now, by this time in the war, the Japanese submarine fleet was thought to mainly be operating up around in the northern Pacific around the Japanese home islands, because you'll remember the Americans are coming. They're getting ready for that final 
home island invasion. Nobody knows anything about an atomic bomb. Everyone thinks that the U.S. fleet and U.S. ground forces are going to invade the Japanese home islands en masse. And so everyone thinks that the subfleet is up there in a defensive posture. Well, most of them are. But these four Taman Group submarines have orders to proceed down into the Philippine Sea and operate in that same area where Indianapolis will be sailing. And there is actually some um, Japanese sub um, activity because the destroyer Underhill is sunk uh, before um, Indy was to reach that area or close to that area. Yes. So just a couple days prior to the Indianapolis setting sail for Leyte, you had the Underhill, which was sunk by Japanese submarines. And also, you know, there was an active submarine chase or hunt with confirmed periscope sighting, I guess you could say. And, you know, they used sonar to detect that there was something there. So the Albert Harris, or is it the Albert T. Harris? Albert T. Harris. Yeah, the Albert T. Harris was in an active sub-hunt for um, Japanese submarines. They had received confirmation that there was something there and there was communication and between several outposts, um, land-based outposts, where they were engaging in this submarine hunt. So there were several commands that were well aware that enemy submarines were in the area and a threat to anyone going on Route Petty, which was the route that would take the Indianapolis from Guam to Leyte. Was McVeigh told about this enemy submarine activity? McVeigh was not told about the enemy submarine activity. As a matter of fact, he visited an old buddy when he got to Guam. He visited an old friend named Commodore James Carter. Uh, Carter was the commander-in-chief of um, um, Pacific Fleet Advance Headquarters on Guam. And when he visited, this was an old academy buddy, and he said, hey, you know, Jimmy, uh, what's the deal? I haven't been out here in the forward areas for three months, you know. Can you give me the lay of the land? And Carter told him, everything's quiet. The Japanese are on their last legs, and this is verbatim. There's nothing to worry about. And meanwhile, this Taman group that I mentioned, um, you, you'll remember the Ultra Intelligence Program. Uh, the actually, what was the movie with Benedict Cumberbatch, Sarah, uh, the Enigma? What was it called? Anyway, it's this, that's the same intelligence program. It was the top, top, top secret code breaking mm-hmm. um, intelligence program of World War II. Well, as early as July nineteenth, which was a week before. Indianapolis dropped the bomb at Tinian. Combat intelligence officers working for Fleet Admiral King and for Admiral Nimitz intercepted message traffic talking about this four submarine group that I mentioned called the Taman Group. And they had very accurately pinpointed the locations of these four submarines around the Philippine Sea. So much so that when Underhill was sunk, they immediately knew that it was one of the Taman Group submarines that had sailed with Commander Hashimoto in 1958. Mm. But none of this information trickled down or Captain McVeigh 
even though it was supposed to, even though this was a highly classified and very sensitive intelligence program, intelligence isn't any good unless it gets to the operational units in the fleet. So what they would do is that they would sanitize it and scrub it, and they would even disguise the information so that if that intelligence actually got back to the Japanese, they wouldn't be able to tell that it had come through broken code. And so um, even at that, none of that sanitized intelligence got to McVeigh. It it sounds like you two ladies are talking about the beginnings of a perfect storm. The destination point doesn't know they're coming. There's Japanese subs in the area that are obviously active. uh, McVeigh is not told about it. I mean, it just seems a lot of things broke down, which in some ways defies the odds, but I guess that's what, what happens in war. There's so much unexpected things. Well, yes, it was what, uh, you know, the, the, the term perfect storm really came into the national lexicon with Sebastian Younger's book, uh, of the same name. And, and the idea behind that is that every condition that has to be present to make the worst possible storm is present. And that was certainly the case in the Indianapolis disaster. Everything that could have gone wrong did go wrong. And, uh, you know, as you'll see from the book and even even from this conversation as we go forward. So um, so McVeigh is going on. His men have charged hell-bent for leather. If the, I don't know if you can use that as a Navy term, but they go from the West Coast to Pearl. Then they go from Pearl to Tinian. Then, now they're heading um, to their next point for the training. I can imagine that everybody's exhausted, and McVeigh, being the kind of captain he was, who seems to have talked to his men on a regular basis, realized that this crew, and with the training, are completely worn out. Well, yes, I imagine so. They, you know, these young men had gone at breakneck speeds, as you had mentioned, and, and you know, McVeigh wanted to get them trained, but he also understood that they kind of needed a break, and so they did really cut their speed by half at this point. You know, they knew that they had to get to Leyte, and there was a restriction, and there were, you know, or I'm trying to think of the word. There were orders put in place to save fuel. At this time, so unless the mission was of the utmost importance, they didn't really want to go high speed because they'd burn through all their fuel. And so the men are kind of on a more relaxed schedule at this point and able to be, you know, handle business as usual as opposed to trying to get to, you know, across the Pacific Ocean in a matter of days. So, so what does do McVeigh, what does McVeigh do to uh, to help the crew actually relax a little bit and get their breath? McVeigh institutes something called Rope Yarn Sunday. This was the Sunday, July 29th. and um, he Rope Yarn Sunday is where everybody gets a break from their normal duties and they get to relax a little bit. the The smoking lamp is lit. The guys settle down with a book. Um, one of them is shooting dice on the fantail, and he and he wins so much money. This was uh, Sam Lopez. Uh, was it? It was Lopez, right, Sarah? Yeah. Yeah. Sam Lopez. So yeah. So Sam Lopez is shooting dice on the fantail, and and he wins so much money that he kisses his lucky dice and throws them overboard. <laughs> so we're following the story of these men and and what they're doing through this relaxed time. And meanwhile, 
Commander Hashimoto, and I, I keep calling him Commander, he was a Lieutenant Commander, Lieutenant Commander Hashimoto has now intercepted the north-south route between Okinawa in the north and Palau, which was that, is that island group at the very southern rim of the Philippine Sea, and the route between Guam and Leyte. So if you can picture those two, they form a cross in the middle of the Philippine Sea, and at the center of it is like a bullseye. So very strategically, Hashimoto says, well, hey, if I go lie in wait at the intersection of these two routes, I am, you know, more likely to be able to intercept an American warship and sink it. So as we're watching, you know, our heroes on Indianapolis relax and, you know, kind of move westward at 15.7 knots per hour, we're also seeing Hashimoto get into position to make his strike. And he has no idea who he's going to encounter out there. The Philippine Sea is huge. And he even knows that that he could encounter no one, that he could miss a chance to attack entirely. But as Sarah said before, he wants to bring home a prize for the emperor, so he has to try. That's incredible. So, so he's sitting there waiting, hoping to get one, because he, I, I would imagine he knows the war is all but over, but he's hoping to, to get at least one victory uh, for his country. Now, later on, this seems to be a very important important point, but... When um, McVeigh relaxes for the evening, I think it's it's pretty late at night. He says he want he, he I guess he orders to stop zigzagging, or he puts out there's stop zigzagging, but do it if you have to. Can you give us? Uh, can you describe for us the um, the importance of zigzagging and and why it seems to be now a big deal that he gave the order to uh, stop from that? Zigzagging was a technique that was you know, a diversionary tactic for cruisers and, you know, large vessels and, you know, actually likely probably small vessels as well to evade submarine attack. But by this point in the war, you know, the Japanese were well aware of this tactic and had, you know, come up with a fan of torpedoes that would be implemented for this very reason. You know, they they would fire the spread of torpedoes, um, six of them generally, and that would kind of, for lack of a better expression, cover their bases knowing that ships would be zigzagging. So Hashimoto at this point had already planned to do this, assuming that the ship, which he, you know, had been spotted and was kind of tracking for a short while, um, was zigzagging. And so he, you know, had already taken that into account and, you know, later when he talks about his strategy for how he went after the Indianapolis, he even states it doesn't matter whether or not she would have zigzagged, I would have got her. Because she was heading right toward the I-58. Wow. And and what I got from your book was McVeigh, and this is completely understandable, there were choppy waters, it was poor visibility as far as the moonlight, and it was a standard procedure to, to stop zigzagging at night, because like you said, what's the point of, of doing it at night if no one can see you? So around 11 p.m., McVeigh heads to his cabin, they're heading to the Philippines, um, and, and then could you take it from there, what happens just after midnight on July 30th? Well, McVeigh heads to his emergency cabin, which is just off the bridge, uh, to, to lie down for the night. And the reason they just call it an emergency cabin, there was no emergency at the time, but he had given his stateroom to a friend who had hitched a ride 
Uh, his name was Captain Edwin Crouch. He had hitched a ride from Guam to Leyte. And so McVeigh was actually sleeping just off the bridge. Um, and, you know, things are just normal on Indianapolis. They have been told they're in safe waters. They're proceeding westbound. Uh, they're steering a straight course because, as you said, visibility was very poor. It was so poor that the men on the bridge had to get right up in each other's faces to even see who was on watch with them. And meanwhile, in other parts of the ship, men are uh, being relieved on watch. They're going to the wardroom to get a sandwich. They're, they're lying down in their bunks. Everything is normal. Meanwhile, um, Hashimoto has been, um, he had been lying down for a while and then he is roused by one of his petty officers. He goes up to the bridge. He puts them all at night battle stations just Routine. It was just something to keep his crew on their toes. Mm. So he raises the night periscope. He doesn't see anything. He sees a little bit of moonlight, sees a clean sea. And so they decide to surface. They surface, they, they open the conning tower. Uh, they wanted to take a celestial fix. So three or four of the men uh, go up to the top, but not Hashimoto. He's still looking through the telescope below. And all of a sudden, one of Hashimoto's crew calls out that he sighted a possible enemy ship and Hashimoto looks in that direction through the periscope and there she is this tiny little dot hanging on the rays of the moon near the horizon so he gives the order suddenly uh, they, they decide to submerge they climb down the conning tower the last man down closes the hatch and and I-58 dives and they never lose sight of Indianapolis from that point on. Hashimoto is able to keep Indianapolis in sight for 27 minutes before he makes his attack. And as Sarah says, he decides not to use the Kaitens, the Kaiten uh, human suicide torpedoes, because he doesn't think they'll be able to navigate very well in the poor visibility. So instead, he decides, decides to fire that fan-wise spread of six torpedoes, and when Indianapolis gets within 1,500 yards, he gives the command, fire. Wow. So it, so it sounds like from your book that he just happened to be in the right place at the right time, obviously a very busy shipping lane, but zigzagging or no, the speed or, or whatever, you know, they, they, you said they were going 17 knots. They could have been going a lot more than that, and it wouldn't have mattered. He just happened to be... In the, in the right spot. So what, what happens just after midnight um, when he gives his order to fire? So just after midnight, uh, it's approximately 12.05 when the two torpedoes strike the Indianapolis. The first one hits at the 12th frame, so it hits essentially the bow and rips off the front of the ship. Um, the second torpedo hits right below the forward stack, which is where the ammunition stores are and causes a massive explosion. But with the bow off and now scooping water at a very fast rate, you know, the ship doesn't really have a great chance. There's, you know, now that they have found the ship and they can, you know, put together a bit more of the information based on what they can see, they realize that, that the bow likely it attached and kind of served as a forward rudder um, in the initial explosion. And so if you were forward of frame 12, you were instantly killed. 
And, you know, that is a lot of the stewards. These are, you know, the young minorities who are serving as the kind of custodians of the ship. And then where the second torpedo hit and blew, this is right in officer's country. This is where you have the, you know, the dental office. You have sick bay. This is where the Marines are all sleeping. And so there was such a high casualty rate for the Marines, the officers, and the stewards because they were sleeping exactly where the torpedoes had struck. So with this also, you know, these explosions took out the power and all communications aboard ship. So there was really no way to communicate from the bridge to the engine rooms to tell them to stop the engines because typical um, protocol at that time, if there was attack, was that you keep moving to get out of the area. You don't stay there and become a sitting duck. So the engine rooms, realizing that they're under attack, think we need to keep propelling the ship forward. They don't know what's going on in the forward areas. And so they're doing everything they can to keep the ship running. Well, this is just funneling more water in and through the ship, and she's going down very quickly. You know, the ship only takes 12 minutes from the time she is struck by the torpedoes till the time her bow disappears below the surface. That's 12 minutes. And as you can imagine, that's not a long time to figure out what's going on and what you're going to do about it. And, and and like you said just a minute ago, I mean, we know that the ship is doomed. We know it's practically scooping up water. McVeigh doesn't know that at first because he can't talk to anybody. There's no communications. And so he eventually gives the order to abandon ship. But like you said, a certain number of people are already dead. A certain number of people are already um, injured. Basically, um, it, it's now time for everybody to get into the water as best they can, injured or not. Well, you know, initially, probably I would say for the first five minutes, now five minutes out of 12 isn't very many, mm-hmm. you know, and, and at this point, McVeigh doesn't know that he only has 12 minutes. So for the first five minutes or so, he thinks, wow, we had a bigger list than this at Okinawa when the kamikaze hit. They eventually listed to 17 degrees and they don't sit away after after uh, Hashimoto's torpedoes hit so he's still trying to figure out do can we save the ship um we think and we're not certain uh but we think that some of the people who went forward to where the bow was to find out the extent of the damage to the ship actually walked off into the water and so McVeigh wasn't getting any information about the extent of the damage to the ship. But eventually, um, he does figure out, as the list gathers speed and increases in angle, you know, it's going to, to 20 degrees to 45 degrees. If you can imagine, you know, the floor in your house shifting 20 degrees, 45 degrees, 60 degrees, he finally figures from the list angle and from other indicators that the ship is going down and he eventually orders abandoned ship. That's correct. So I, I imagine there's just mass confusion. There's oil in the water. People are getting off the ship as fast as they can uh, in groups or as individuals. I guess there's not really a chance to grab um, too much gear to help you once you're in the water. Well, the men started going overboard very soon after the ship was torpedoed. So as you imagine, these men are now spread out quite a distance. And, you know, there's the people who went off the starboard side who, you know, the, the ship is listing to the starboard. So 
people are sliding down the deck, falling into the water. But this is the side that all the equipment, that some of the rafts, the life jackets, everything is going along with them. So those who were able to get off the starboard side, you know, actually had a better chance of having supplies and resources because they were going off the ship with them. Um, but protocol is that you go off the hide side of the ship, which is the port side. And so those, you know, doing the best they can to get off the port side of the ship are now jumping off and they have nothing. And this is the largest group of men that are doing this. And so, you're, you know, you have two, three hundred men now going into the water with nothing. Some with no life jackets. There's no rafts. There's no food. There's no water. They're completely being put into the ocean with nothing but the clothes on their back. And some of which, you know, it's midnight in the Pacific. It's very, very hot. Many of these men slept naked. So they don't even have clothes on their back. They're completely, as God made them, going into the water, not knowing what's going on and having no communication whatsoever to tell them what to do or how to, you know, go about what's happening next. And remember, some of them don't even know how to swim. So, um, roughly how many men were on the Indy, and do we have an idea of how many went into the water? We know that there were 1,195 men in aboard, 1,195, four of them were crew, plus the passenger, Captain Edwin Crouch, who caught the most doomed ride ever to be caught, probably, and about... 300 men went down with the ship, including those who were killed, as Sarah mentioned, when the torpedo struck those berthing compartments and also blew off the bow. Um, about uh, somewhere around uh, 880 men made it off the ship, and then, um, and then their ordeal began. So of the 880 men now in the water, I, I imagine most of them don't have any equipment. Some of them are injured, and it's the middle of the night in, in, the, uh, in the Philippine Sea. So I can only imagine, and like you were saying earlier, some of them are just teenagers. Um, I can only imagine the terror that they must have been going through. Yes, well, you know, the, there is a young officer by the name of Ensign Donald Blum who said he kept trying to wake himself up, that it was so unreal and so dark and he was so alone that he had to believe this was a nightmare. And so for the first couple hours, he said he just tried to wake up. And that was kind of the sentiment around the group. You know, some of these men were so spread out and so alone, they thought they were the only ones who had survived. You know, others were in larger groups and started congregating together and trying to find out what's going on. But at this point, you know, they're spread out for over a mile. And you have, you know, as Lynn had said, you know, they think about 800, you know, there's an estimated number that about 800 went into the water. But that wasn't one large group of people. Mm -hmm. And they were, you know, some had rafts. Very few had rafts, but some had rafts. Some were grabbing onto any of the flotsam around them, the you know, the food barrels, the crates, those kind of things. And so the biggest thing here is that nobody really knew what happened because it happened so fast, no one could communicate it. And there, at this point, as you mentioned, it's dark. It's, you know, probably at least five hours before dawn. And they are 280 miles from the nearest land, which at this point is Palau in the, in, on the southern rim of the Philippine Sea. 
And uh, interestingly, you know, well, okay, so as you mentioned, we're badly, badly wounded. And, and many of those badly wounded men, we don't know how many, died within an hour or, or before the sun came up. Mm. Among those who did not, though, there was this expectation that rescue was coming. They all knew that they were supposed to, uh, that remember that message that we said was garbled when it was first transmitted, mm-hmm. um, to Admiral McCormick, it was later decoded properly and he didn't quite understand it. But, but meanwhile, there was another message, uh, sent that, um, said that Indy was going to arrive off of Leyte for gunnery practice on July 31st at about 8 a.m., and then she was going to, so you know, quote-unquote, shoot her way in, and then she was going to pull into port at about 11. Well, a lot of the men who were in the water, especially those who worked on or near the bridge or in the gunnery department, they knew this. So they thought, okay, we just have to wait, you know, maybe 24 hours, and they'll be coming to get us when we don't show up for gunnery practice. So a lot of them really had hope. They really thought, okay, the Navy's going to take care of us. And that didn't turn out to be the case. Right, because no one knows where they're at. No one knows what, what's happened to them. And you, you have over 800 men in the water. When the sun comes up on July 30th, on Monday, obviously it's going to start to get hot. You've got these very high swells, what, 10 or 12 feet high swells. They can't see each other. They have no way to really um, get around in the water. They're just floating there. But again, as long as far as they're concerned, as long as they can hang out for, what, a couple hours, maybe a half a day at the most, a day at the most, everything's going to be okay. But what we now know is that no one knows what's happened to them. No one knows where they're at and no one's looking for them. Correct. There, you know, optimism, our optimism was quite high. Um, at that point, you know, the men all, all thought, man, they have to be here for 24 hours. You know, we just have to stay alive until they come looking for us when we don't arrive on Tuesday and going along those lines, these men feel that they're going to be rescued at any time if they can stay alive that long, just until Tuesday morning. And, you know, there are quite a few injured and they're trying to keep their buddies alive. A lot of men are holding on to fellow sailors, um, officers. You know, there were no rank in the water at this point. And so, you know, about Wednesday afternoon when they realized a sailor, he was 17 at the time by the name of Dick Thielen, who said, hell, we realized we were going to die out there. And that was the sentiment among the group that they had then realized no one was looking for them and there was no hope and things had, you know, gone downhill so significantly by that point between shark attacks, hallucinations, you know, quite a few of the men had passed away by then. So they're surrounded by bodies and you have this terrible, terrible situation where they have now really given up hope. Yeah. I, um, I know we're going to come to the end soon, um, but, but again, like you were saying just a minute ago, after a couple of days in the water, this is their new reality. All they know is trying to hold on, trying to fight off other people who are who are losing control of themselves, fight off the sharks, fight off, uh, I guess, uh, 
thirst and 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 knowing that they shouldn't drink the water, the salt water, because it's just going to make the situation worse. I mean, I can only imagine the hell that these these people were going through. And um, for for the all those who are listening out there, we've only covered like what maybe sixty percent of the book. The ordeal that these people go through, the miracle that comes to some of them. To saving them, but the but the sheer numbers of people that were lost. It is an absolutely incredible story, and then you pick up from there because this is going to the the book continues for decades after this event. But uh, like you were saying in, in the book earlier, I think it's the worst naval disaster that the U.S. Navy had gone through. And just like we were touching on earlier, there were just so many things that went wrong to make this possible. You just it just boggles the mind. Um, uh, and if you if, could, you just maybe give us a couple instances of what some of the men went through while they were in the ocean, waiting or hoping uh, for rescue. Well, I want to just uh, paint a picture of, of what we're looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, as Sarah mentioned, they were spread out over a mile when the ship first went down, but slowly, slowly, slowly the survivor groups drifted apart. And if they had been, if someone had spotted them on that first day, they would have seen this thick winding mat of fuel oil and then survivor groups spread individually and in clumps. Eventually they were spread out over, I think front to back. Is it 40 miles, Sarah? The the groups, the leading. I believe it was 35 miles. So they were spread out. Right. And so, you had four separate groups who were lucky enough to find rafts. And on those rafts, there were meager supplies, a few rations, hardtack, uh, some rudimentary fishing gear, and things like that. Those lucky groups enjoyed a relative oasis compared to that largest group that Sarah mentioned earlier, which was between three and 400 men who either had only life jackets or nothing at all. And then there were a couple of groups that also had floater nets, which were just big nets that were held together by cork floats. So they at least didn't have to kick their legs or have their faces in the water. They at least could be on those floater nets. But some of the things that these different groups went through, uh, you mentioned salt water. You know, very quickly... Within 48 hours, they began to be very, very dehydrated. Some of their, some of the thirst was so bad that their tongues would begin to swell up in their mouths, so that they couldn't even talk around their tongues. Mm-hmm. And um, some of the men would would hallucinate and believe that uh, they could drink the salt water. They they would hallucinate and believe it was fresh water, and so they would drink it, and that would cause kidney failure. It caused insanity. It caused their brains to short circuit uh, very violently. The way if you've ever seen a a tree branch hit a high voltage line, their brains would just short out. Um, They went through, they they went insane. And and this was not just saltwater drinkers. Many of the men went insane from starvation, from dehydration, from the effects of the sun. And they would hallucinate and think that they would see Indianapolis just a few feet under the water and they would go down to the dunk. They would dive down because they were going to go get some water to drink on the ship. And of course, when 
they dove down and swam down, swam down, they would drown before they came back up. And um, there, there were the, excuse me, the shark attacks. Do you want to talk about that, Sarah? One of the, the, the biggest things that these men faced while they were in the water were shark attacks. And as you imagine, 73 years ago, the ocean was much fuller of the sharks. You know, this was um, really one of the the highest, you know, the highest density populations of sharks that would actually attack human beings. And these men were right in the middle of it. And so, you know, you had these 15 to 20 foot sharks, these men were reported seeing attacking constantly throughout the entire 104 hours that they were in the water. So they didn't really let up. And the reports from the rescue crew when they found these men were that the shark attacks actually increased as they realized the men were being pulled from the water. So, you know, this is a horrifying event that these young men had to face in addition to being abandoned by the, you know, the Navy. And then also just trying to survive amongst their fellow shipmates who had, you know, started hallucinating and were not in their right mind and drinking salt water and and everything that Lynn just described. So the shark attack were just you know, another part of this horrifying story of what these men went through. Because they were also attacking each other in the end. Uh, By Wednesday night, uh, they were, many of the men, not all of them, but many of the men were out of their heads and many, many of their faces were covered in fuel oil. So with the dark faces, they would hallucinate and and they would think that their buddy next to them was a, was a Japanese soldier attacking them. And so they had these horrible, violent clashes in the water. And some of the men abandoned ship in their dungarees and they were carrying utility knives on their belts. And so they would attack each other with knives, uh, not out of malice, but just because they were hallucinating. And so uh, by Wednesday night, uh, there were so many of these attacks that the men succumbed to those and not to dehydration, not to shark attacks, but to each other. That's incredible. One of the things that I will always remember from this book, and there were many things, but one of them was that I think maybe the first day or so, you mentioned something like the sharks were busy with the bodies of the men who had already died. Um, So that was a small reprieve, even though watching your friend, even though he's already dead, get taken by a shark must have been horrific. But then again, of course, that brings more sharks and blood in the water. So again, just just another building uh, thing for these guys to deal with. Um, So if it's okay with you, ladies, I think we're going to stop here because there's so much in this book we haven't covered. Um, We want to give the audience something to to discover as they get your book. Uh, Can you give us an idea? Before we go, um, so you said um, I think just under twelve hundred people from the from the crew of the Indy. Do we know r- roughly how many people were brought out of the water after days and days of of waiting for waiting to be rescued? There were three hundred and twenty men who were alive when they were pulled from the water. Um, or I'm sorry, three hundred and twenty men alive who were pulled out of the water, and four passed away during the rescue efforts. And so they were counted amongst those lost at sea. And so the survivors of this were 316 men, most of which were enlisted. 
most of those men who did survive were the young enlisted men. The officers, as I mentioned before, were you know in great number killed upon impact, and so there were very few officers who survived the sinking and then lived to be rescued. So the total number of those who survived was three hundred and sixteen. Wow, very, uh, yeah. Again, this book, um, it, it was like when I was a little kid and I watched Jaws for the first time. A- after reading your book, I was not excited about the idea of going back into the water anytime soon. Yes, Jaws ruined, ruined the ocean for me. And <laughs> and uh, if I had any uh, inklings of going back in the water after Indianapolis, no, I think I'm just going to sit on the beach. Yeah. That's probably best. Um, I, I, I was just going to add that, you know, I at one point along the, through the years, I actually went out into um, Blue Water, which is about seven miles off the coast of San Diego, and put myself out in the water for about an hour just to see what it was like. And I can tell you, I barely made it an hour. And my imagination ran wild. It was terrifying and i knew that there was a boat 100 feet from me and it was still horrible and so trying to imagine what these men men went through for those 104 hours is just even after spending all these years with them i have no idea how they did it i have no idea how they survived they shouldn't have and for any real reason they shouldn't have but they did and that's something that you know i'll carry with me for the rest of my life is trying to imagine what that was like for them in the water Incredible. Ladies, thank you very much. I cannot praise this book uh, highly enough. It was great. It was a great read. The story uh, was incredible and all the individual stories that you tell, that you cover, and the way the crew pulled together behind the captain, because obviously after something like this, you know, people are going to start asking questions. And the great thing about being the captain is that you're the captain, but when something bad happens, you also get the blame. So everybody, please check out and get the book Indianapolis, the true story of the worst sea disaster in U.S. naval history and the 50-year fight to exonerate an innocent man. Ladies, thank you very much. Thank you, Ray. Thank you so much. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the... The weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.